Today's episode of the How To Human podcast features one of my own personal internet friends, somebody who's been a part of the How To Human book club for I think over a year now, and someone who I recently discovered is a very good writer as well. My friend Laura Whitfield is a author, a former teacher, a life adventurer. This is someone who I've gotten to know over a year or longer, someone who I've really grown to respect and love and cherish their opinion, and who has an amazing story. Today's episode is pretty simple. One awesome human talking to another awesome human who has lived a life of adventure, reflection, and falling down and getting back up again. It's also a conversation between two friends, and I hope you enjoy it. Here is my conversation with Laura Whitfield. Hey, Laura. Hey, Sam. This has been like a long time in the making. It has. I have to tell you, I get so nervous whenever I'm going to read a friend's book, mm-hmm. or someone who I know personally. I hate to think about what would happen if it's bad. And that's happened a couple times. I just have to say, I love your writing style. Thanks. I'm not finished with the book, but I burned through the pages I read really quickly. Thank you. Obviously, it's picking up awards left and right, mm-hmm. so I'm not alone there. I think our book club might have to read it. It's really good. Well, thank yeah. you. I would love that. I was so nervous. You know, anytime somebody joins the book club and they talk mm-hmm. about their own writing, I always get nervous. Yeah, interesting. Comparing your book to the one that I fought tooth and nail to get. <laughs> 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 I'm kind of like, you know, we'd be, we would have been a lot better off if you had just read the first 10 pages of this Comparative book. analysis, right? So. Yeah. I start the podcast the same way. Actually, let me step back. We know each other. I created a little book club. I said, hey, to all the people who've been supporting this show, if there's a few of you who want to read books with me, come on by. I think you were there pretty pretty soon after. And have always kind of been a part of this funny, regular, weekly group hodgepodge that we do. And we've become (laughs) friends. Yeah. It's a one-part book club, one-part life check-in and stuff. And it's it's been really cool to build a relationship with you over the past year or whatever it's been. Yeah. It's cool to finally (laughs) meet you. It is. I, I was going to go back and look at... I remember I sent you an email... And just said, hey, I'm interested in the book club. And you said, come on. And and then what I love about ours is that we're just, I'm addicted to it, doing life together. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes we blow the book off and we you just say, hey, how's everybody doing? And it, that's what draws me. I mean, it's the relationships and community we have. And it just feels like such a safe space. And I love it. I love, I love talking about the books too, but that's not why I show up every week. <laughs> Yeah, I think we got really lucky. I love the the spread of the people there. Me That's kind of and there was no way for me to know cuz mm-hmm. for the longest time I created in the silo, which is not how I ever actually want to create mm-hmm. again. I am now a herd animal. I've learned my lesson. The fact that there's multi-generations, you know, we have a 20-year-old. We have our elders, we have the people in the middle and just all different walks of life. As somebody who doesn't quite feel comfortable going to church mm-hmm. yet, mm-hmm. I've been toying with it and trying churches out. It fills such a, a need for that diverse group rather right. than just your peers. Right. I love hanging out with just my peers. Right. But there's something when you hear from someone in a different generation, someone who's 10 years younger than you, mm-hmm. and you hear from them and you get to be 10 years ahead of them, mm-hmm. it feeds a different part of my humanity in a totally different way than hanging out with peers does. Oh, absolutely. I love it. I just love the diversity of it and just what I learn from everyone. So I start this show the same way every week. And this can be as big or as small of a question, but Laura, who are you? I am someone who loves deeply. <laughs> and also, I guess I wake up every day and I'm excited about what the day might hold. I really look up and every day's a gift to me. And I'll get into why <laughs> later. I just have an excitement. Also, as I get older, my time's shorter and I just want to use that time. But that's sort of how I approach life every day. I'm also a writer. I'm a, a wife, a mom, a grandmom. I have a little grandson who's two, who I adore. Friend, sister, all those roles. But 
Really, I'm just somebody who wants to make the most of the time I have. When did you start writing? I wrote my first poem when I was 10. <laughs> my dad was a newspaper editor, and he was also a stringer for Time Magazine. So he would write articles from time to time. And he had a royal typewriter on our kitchen table very often. So I just remember this one memory. I, I don't know what brought it on, but I remember I went and grabbed a piece of ruled notebook paper, threaded it through his typewriter, and I sat down and I typed this poem called Life. And I was 10, and I have it framed on my desk. It was my first effort at writing. I think I knew from that moment I wanted to be a writer. And it's really interesting. I Years later, I worked for Jan Karen, who's a New York Times bestselling author. And she decided at the age of 10, she wanted to write. And she told me that she had done some research or read something that a lot of famous authors had realized, and artists also had realized at the age of 10, that they were called to do their art. And I keep hearing it. Yesterday, I was listening to NPR, and somebody said, Arthur Brooks was with Kate Bowler, and he said, yeah, at the age of 10, I knew I wanted to be a professional musician. <laughs> and I was like, bingo. <laughs> so I don't know what it is about that age, but I think that's when I knew and I started. But professionally, I started when I was around 30. So when I started, I went to a writing conference and got some good feedback. And they bought my story and sent me a little check. And I went from there and I've been doing it for 35 years or so. How long was this book in the making? How long did it take to write? I started it in January of 2017 okay, in earnest yeah. with a coach, and I finished in March of 2019. It's very tight. The parts I read so far, it's very well crafted. And so I was curious, <laughs> like, how long did this piece take to birth? It yeah, sounds like five years. I, I took a lot of memoir classes and writing classes um, in the three years probably leading up to the writing of it. It was interesting. I retired in 2015. Stephen and I got married, and a friend of mine who had been teaching had retired before me, and she said, I have one piece of advice for you. She said, the first year you retire, don't do anything. She said, don't volunteer. Don't take on a part-time job. She said, just sit with a cup of coffee or tea and stare out your window. And we live by a lake. So I did that. I was like, that's really, there's something to that. I thought it was really wise because all of a sudden have this void in your life. This, I've been doing it, I've been teaching kindergarten for 15 years. And then all of a sudden you wake up and it took me a while to sort of not wake up and think, I got to get to school or oh, I forgot my lesson plan or whatever. But I did that. And then after about a year, I was restless and I was like, I, I want to start writing. So I sat down and I just started writing stories of Whatever came to mind that day, like I'd write about going to my grandmother's farm or I'd write about how all the women in my mother's generation wore house coats and all the things they kept in their pockets or just whatever it was. So I did that for about eight months and I had all these memories and stories. I told my husband one day, I said, I'm not sure this is a book. It doesn't seem to be cohesive or I don't really know what it is. What, what was the first groove of writing you got into? Because that can be the hardest part. Right, it's to get in the groove. Yeah. So you would mean, you sit down in the mornings or like, how yeah. did you start that transition into teacher into, oh, this is actually what I, this is a real chunk of my life now as I write. Right. Well, I had, I had been a professional copywriter, freelance copywriter for eight years. And then I was a staff writer for International Relief Agency. And I worked for a couple of nonprofits as communications directors. So getting into a writing groove, I mean, although those were different. Genres. Writing for someone else. Right. And then writing for yourself. <laughs> yeah, though. that's true. Yeah. But I, I just sort of looked at it as fun. I, I didn't have any pressure. I, I wasn't trying to, I wasn't writing for a publisher trying to make a deadline. I was just sitting down, sort of culling through memories and writing. I thought, well, I'll just start with sort of just things from my past. But then when I got to that place where I didn't know if it was a book or not, my husband said, you know, why don't you hire a coach? And I had been taking classes with Brooke Warner, who ended up being my coach. And I contacted her and sent her some writing samples, and she said, yeah, I'd like to work with you. So then we just decided, well, what do you want to write? And I said, well, I want to write a memoir. And, of course, it started with my brother's death. So she had me write out sort of, they're called turning points, about 20 sort of important points in your life where there were dr dramatic changes or things happened. And Say that again. It's, it's a they're called point? turning points. That's what she calls them. So she had you lay out the turning points of your life? Right. Sort of a timeline. Wow. And I started with my birth and sort of went to present. 
And obviously that's too much. And she said, well, your story really starts when your brother died. That's when it begins. That's the, that's the moment. And then we had to determine when the story ended because my book's pretty long. It, it spans 20 years. And most memoir is a slice of life. It's just Cheryl Stray, her mom dies. She goes into crisis and is grieving, so she decides to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. It's a very small window of time. You look at other memoirs, same. So most of them are just a, they're episodic or they're just a short period of time. So I was working across 20 years, but she felt like it would work. And we figured out what the beginning was and the ending. And then I sort of outlined all those chapters. And then I just started writing. I would meet with her every two weeks We'd, on the phone. <laughs> so I was in North Carolina. She was in Berkeley. I'd send her my writing, what I'd done, and she'd go over and edit it and then give me her feedback. And then I'd start the next section. I did that for two and a half years until I finished. That's incredible. I, I couldn't just, have done it without her. She yeah. was it really, honestly, I'm working on another book now and I'm doing it by myself. <laughs> it's very different. I mean, I know what to do. And because I've done it, I have confidence of the process. But I really miss the feedback. Yeah. As I write, really miss it. I have joined a writing group that has gotten me writing for the first time in, in years. I don't know what the last blog post or something that I wrote was, but it was probably four years ago. Wow. And these two other guys, they had me on their show. And I basically said, so you got anything I can collaborate with you guys on this? I like your energy, you know? Yeah. And they said, oh, well, we're all kind of working on on our pieces. And I said, can I invite myself into that? And it's got me writing again. I don't know oh, if I'm writing for oh, good. publication or, or if I'm just writing because mm -hmm. it's something that I want to do. But it got me writing again. It's so It's such a huge win. And I think it's a lot of these activities because they have to be done in solitude. Mm -hmm. You can't like write while talking to your friends. No. <laughs> you know, you can't write while watching the news. Mm -hmm. We turn them into a completely solitary activity rather than to figure out like, well, how is this how could this be done together? Could we go write and read each other's works? Could I ask a friend to read it every week and then if I don't turn it in that week, my friend goes, Hey, what's what's up with that? You right. Know? Just okay? accountability. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a difference. I One thing I learned early on, though, I did some writing groups in the beginning. In fact, I had someone contact me the other day and said, do you let others read your work? And when I first started out and I worked for Jan, she said to me, she let me read some of her early drafts. And she said, I'll only let you read this on one condition, that you'll be completely honest. She said, I don't need you to make me feel good or say the right thing. She's like, that's not helpful to me. She said, I need your honesty. So I learned right away when you read, you're honest with someone. And and I've always demanded that of the people that read my work too. So I don't give mine to a lot. Of, I give it to people I trust and who I know will give me honest feedback because I don't need to hear, oh, this is great. That really doesn't help you at all. Right. You need someone who says, yeah, I like that, but uh, that sentence I tripped on it or, or this part doesn't work for me or whatever it is, but just honesty. And I can take it. And also, I think that's helped me with a lot of writers are so susceptible to rejection. They're so worried about what do people think. And for years, when you have people giving you honest feedback, it toughens you a little bit. You know, you don't sit there and dread hearing it. You just think, okay, they're going to just tell me my husband reads all my work. He's, he's a writer also. Excellent editor. Really blessed to have him. But he's completely honest with me. And I do the same with him. And it, it works for us. And it's, I think it's made my writing a lot better, and I'm really grateful. So if you're in a group like that, you know, that'll be beneficial for you. Yeah, it's, but, been, it's been great. Yeah, good. Putting on your best storyteller hat, set up the book for us. Okay. What's the premise? I came from a family. My, my dad was a journalist. My mom was a teacher. There were three children, so I was the baby, the only girl. I had an older brother, Lawrence, who at the time of the writing, I was 14. He was 23. And then we had a middle brother, Horace, who was around 20, 21 at the time. It was away at college. We had sort of a, I'd say, a normal childhood, happy, you know, my recollections. And we lived on an acre of land, and I just remember spending all my time outdoors. I loved, we all loved being outside. Spent time with our cousins, just didn't go anywhere exotic, just took family vacations together, but everything was going along. And 
Lawrence graduated from college. He got a full scholarship to the University of Edinburgh to study William Blake. And he left the fall of 70, went over to Edinburgh, and I adored him. He was just my everything. (laughs) And he treated me like an adult, and I think that's why I felt like he really saw me. He went off, and I missed him terribly. And then in February, one Sunday afternoon, Daddy's editor came by the house and um, stood at the door and gave Daddy some news. And Daddy came back and told us that Lawrence had fallen 1,000 feet from Ben Nevis, which is the tallest mountain in the U.K., and um, had been killed. And so from that moment, my world was just completely shattered. I'd always gone to church, and we went sort of every week, like people do in the South, and but it didn't really mean anything to me. But after Lawrence died that fall, I went to a new I went to a new high school and met some girls, and they were just really different. They were just very joyful. And I said, "What is it with you guys? You're always happy." And they said, "We love Jesus." <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "I was like, oh, I want to love Jesus too." Because like, I want what you got. So I started going to this community Bible study, and anyway, it became became a, what I believe is made a real commitment to faith that fall, and it just changed my life. It gave me hope. It gave me something to live for. And then at the same time, my mom went into a deep five year depression and started taking Valium and just really struggled because she lost her her oldest son. I mean, she really adored him also, and I don't think she really ever got over it, honestly. Um, yeah, I've seen that happen. Yeah. And Lawrence was kind of larger than life, too, with how he brilliant he was, how talented he was. Brilliant, like yeah. Like, if you looked at the trajectory <laughs> yeah. he was going, I think that some potential is a weird thing mm-hmm. because it's not quite, it's not real, but people hold you to it. Right. <laughs> you know? so, right. Like, yeah. There is something about an untimely death when somebody had such a trajectory. Mm-hmm. And in real life, you have no idea what that person actually would or wouldn't have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it adds to this thing. It does. And and he had a full scholarship to Yale Divinity School. He was a Marshall Scholar. He, I mean, we went, I'm just learning some things now, even materials that I've received. He went to Parliament and met members of Parliament. and In Scotland? In, yeah, when he wow. was in Scotland, he they took him down to London with his group. And I mean, he was just, he was just sort of charmed in that way. But we found out he had a girlfriend that we loved, my parents loved, and I loved her. And um, we didn't know, but she'd gone over at Christmas time and they decided to get married when he came home. So we found out after he passed away that they were engaged. And so, yeah, it was just, it was a lot. And I think he was either going to I mean, he's going to divinity school, but maybe just to to write and teach in the college level, maybe not to even become a pastor, but still just a lot of potential. And and then all of a sudden it was just over. If I remember correctly, the relationship he was in affected you really deeply. Mm -hmm. Can you pinpoint why that added so much extra string? With his fiance. With his fiance, yeah. Yeah, I think just, I really loved her. It wasn't that, it was just more just... I get maybe that he was with someone else or just like that heightened, sort of. It heightened the unfairness of it? Or? Yeah, just I think that I was going to have a sister. I never had a sister, and she felt like a sister to me, and so I'd lost that too. And then it was just so sad for her. We were so sad for her. Their future was gone. So it was our loss as a family, but then the loss of her future with him and theirs together and what that would have meant. So it was just hard. So Mm. you're 14 when you learn the great lesson that Mm -hmm. life is incredibly chaotic and unfair. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter how talented you are, how brilliant you are, Mm -hmm. how many things you're supposed to do, it can end. Yeah. No rhyme or reason. Yeah. How does that turning point guide you? Right? Like it's like, it's such an early initiation into it. I think yeah. there are moments like that for a lot of people in adolescence, but a dear brother is especially close. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a grandparent. It's not traditional, normal initiation into the unfairness and the mm-hmm. fragileness of life. This person, it really was untimely. Mm-hmm. You know, this person did not get to have their best years yet. They had spent their whole life making sure that their future would be mm-hmm. fantastic. And so how does that change the way you see the world. I think that as a 14-year-old, I what I realized is that 
you do have to take chances. I mean, that was the first revelation I had. And it was the night he died. I read about in my book that my aunt came over. She lived across town and we were making my bed because we expected a lot of company. And I just looked at her and I said, life is short. You have to dream big or take risks. You can't remember exactly. And I said in my book, I was 14. How could I even have understood what that meant? Those words are way beyond my understanding at that age. But something put that there. I feel like in writing my book, I realized that that understanding meant a lot of risk-taking behavior. So I just sort of went out and just threw it all to the wind and did this and did that and took chances. And when I was living in New York, felt like I was going to be 20 forever. I mean, I thought I was invincible. But now at my age, what it does is it gives me that when going back to what I've I said in the opening is just that when I wake up every day, I just life is such a gift because I just know it can end like that. And I walk around with that sense and I'm very aware of death. I'm very aware of precarity and fragility and just how precious things are in every moment. And I try to stay very present with people and in my life as much as I can because I know things are so precious and I'm grateful for that. I feel like that's the gift I got as I get older. And I was telling our friends in LA, I said, this seems so obvious, but when things go into your short-term memory, I think they're there for, they have to be there for like 33 seconds or something. And then it goes into your processing and then it goes into your long-term memory. But if you're distracted or you're not paying attention, you're not present, it won't go in. And then later on, you won't remember it. So it's really only the things you're present to, very present to. Like I'm looking at you now and really looking at your face and really thinking about I'm here. I'm in the studio. We're talking. If I just allow myself to sit with that and really focus on it, then one day down the road, I'll be able to recall this moment and think about it. And it will be the sweet moment for me because I was all here. So that seems obvious, but we want to have beautiful memories, right? And it's really only those things that we're very present to that we're going to remember later. Yeah. I have an interesting relationship with risk. My 12 to 25 Mm -hmm. were like so risky. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I think I pushed it too far. (laughs) I pushed the scale too far. (laughs) And you know, I end up with a, a kid at 18. I end up dropping out of college and I end up like really in serious drug addiction. My experiences and my hurts have really made me psychologically very conservative, mm. very risk averse because it just feels like, oh, wow, I've really destroyed my life. I'll be parenting a minor for the next five years mm-hmm. and then I'll always be his parent and always want to parent him. But that I really set my life back. And there's a part of me now that wants to take risks and wants to find the risks I want to take. I just recorded a solo talk yesterday. Was it yesterday? No, Monday. Mm -hmm. And I had been avoiding that for probably over a year. It's probably been two years since I started thinking about it. And then it Definitely a year since I told Reese, hey, I really want to do stuff that's not guest dependent. I've been learning for four years and I really want to do it. I'm terrified. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of old wounds Mm -hmm. there. And so when you're talking to young people, when you're trying to explain the reason why you need to take risks, how do you thread that needle of like, these are the risks I'm so glad I took? maybe pass on that. How do you explain what you've learned living adventurously? What has rewarded you the most looking back now? I don't give a lot of people or I haven't given a lot of people advice, younger people about who have come to me and said, should I do this or should I do that? But I've raised three daughters to adulthood. I have three that are about your age. And um, they're all lovely, (laughs) capable, strong, fierce women who are doing I think they're all doing work they love and have worked hard to get there. I think I just, what I've learned is just that, I mean, you will, if you take a risk, you risk failing. 
And I think as you get older and the more you fail or fall on your face or you feel stupid or whatever, and you get up and you brush yourself off and you just say, okay, well, that didn't go the way I thought it would. And you're still here and you didn't die and people didn't come out of the woodwork or whatever. And, or maybe they do and you survive that and you go on and wake up the next day and you got through it. And then it just builds, that's what builds resilience. It's just taking risks, falling down, getting back up. You have to keep getting back up. And sometimes it takes a little longer than other times. You know, sometimes you can get back up quickly. Other times it's a big fall. It takes you a while to get your courage back up. But if you can just keep going and doing the next thing, that's something I do talk about. I always just say, you know, just do the next thing. What is that? So you did your talk. There's things about it, I'm sure, you would improve or nearly everything. But instead of beating <laughs> yourself up, you go, okay, I did it. And what can I learn from it? And what are where areas I can improve? And you just go through it. But don't beat yourself up. You just sort of as a matter of fact, okay. Yeah, but look, I did it. Great. And then you try it again and you'll incorporate things you learn from it. And then it'll get easier. And then after a while, you may have your own like Sam Lamont hour or something. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you build resilience is just making mistakes and getting up. I mean, I just, when I first met you and you were talking about self-sabotage and all the risks you took and I was like, oh, he needs to read my book. Yeah. You know, because self-sabotage big time. Yeah. I haven't gotten to any of the major falling on your faces. Yeah. Have you gotten to the New York part where, I mean, the reason I left New York. Oh, no. Keep reading chapter nine or 10. Well, I I think we're going to read it as a group. Okay. I think you'll have to sit through that. I'm very sorry. But yeah, when my daughters read it, I said, just keep reading. I said, you got to get through the first half. <laughs> like, don't give up. Like, don't give up. It gets better. I said, yeah. I can't wait. No, the, I enjoy the writing voice a lot. It's mm. it's not a chore to read your work, which Aww. is, you know, that was when I sat down and finally started reading. I was like, mm. oh. <laughs> I don't know if you have that experience. Uh, yeah. yeah, I just read Delia Efron's new book, Left on 10th, which is an amazing memoir. She writes like me. I mean, she. I was a copywriter, so I write in snippets and unfinished sentences and one-word sentences and that kind of thing. And I had some people comment. And they said, yeah, you used incomplete sentences. I said, yeah, that's how I write. It's my style. Yeah. I just can't. I'm not really like a long, effusive, literary kind of writer. It's just who I am. I just write me. Yeah. Well, it's it's quick and it's fun and it keeps, yeah, it keeps and I think things it, moving. I think it keeps it moving. Yeah. yeah. I like to read writing like that. And her writing, her book was like that. And it was, I just plowed through it because I didn't just keep stumbling on these long sentences. And that's what I personally like, but everybody's different. I ended up in the, I mean, as you know, we've, we've talked about it. So I ended up in this weird thing this weekend. I went in very skeptical. I wanted to hate it. I ended up really liking it, unfortunately. I don't know what that this says about me, but it's not over yet. There's still time for me to hate it, but it's very experiential. Mm. It's also like probably reckless. Like it's like what no therapist could do because they would lose their license. They kept putting me in situations where there's like an opportunity to behave a certain way. Like you don't realize the exercise is to pay attention Mm. to how you're behaving. Mm. And then they go, okay, so like you had an opportunity to dance in front of a whole group of strangers. Like, did you dance as hard as you'd like to? And you go, no. Mm. It's like, huh, that's interesting. So you wanted to be dancing like ecstatically in front of the you saw the people doing that and you kind of felt like i wish i could do that but you for whatever you just didn't and you go no huh that's really strange why do you do that and so it kept being like oh yeah why do i do that like there's a, a hunger in me to want to really express myself fully mm-hmm. and i told myself my whole life like if you were to ask me i'd say oh i was a shy and nervous kid I was a shy and nervous kid. I was incredibly shy. But I don't think I like that word anymore at all. I don't like it either. I think shy is really speaks more to like, I was really afraid. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid of being judged. There was a, another experience where before you meet anybody, you just meet face to face. You're in a room circling around. You meet face to face and you just tell people exactly what your first read is. And every single time I felt the fear of rejection. Mm. It was so strange to do this show, to podcast, to talk to people, to talk in front of large groups. Like I was not aware of how present that fear of rejection was. Like I have a way, I have masked it 
in a way that it just didn't even read. But you get thrown into these weird experiences and you go, I really want people to like me. I want all these people to like me. And ah, that feels so scary when when somebody says like, yeah, I don't trust you. <laughs> we don't even know me, but that's the point of the exercise. Right. You know? and then, so you get your first rejection. And, and you, go, you go, see, I knew I knew it was I was right. Um, so there's kind of this new light in my head of like, well, God, who would I be if I wasn't terrified? Like I frequently, if I go, if I'm single and I go mm-hmm. to a social thing, if I'm in a bar or a dance. I frequently leave wishing, oh, I wish I had talked to that person. Mm. I wish I had just seen if we had the chemistry I thought we would have in my head. Or I wish I had danced with that person. Mm-hmm. So I frequently have these experiences where I'm leaving unsatisfied with how I showed up. And it was just kind of a gift to get to go, to get to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. And you can say, wow, there is a real gap between like what how I wish I expressed myself as myself and how I currently know how to mm-hmm. and it's weird to to be 33 and go oh i'm gonna work on my shyness right because i in my mind that that's what i was doing when i podcasted that's what i w- right. was doing when i got really good at social situations like i'm a, now an extroverted introvert i can schmooze right but just because i can schmooze it's a different skill the schmoozing is like how i know will work like I know I have a routine, I have a shtick yeah. that will work. And everyone will go, wow, that Sam guy is great, you know. <laughs> but it's that's not the same as what I'm t- talking about now, which is how do I actually want to be? Right. Like, do I want to go see people who I think seem cool and to say, Hey, you guys seem cool. Can I sit with you? That's wild. I feel like I'm at the start of something new. Yeah, it's like our development is just peeling back layers of an onion. Yeah. And yeah, there's a, a selfishness to the shyness as well that I think I just mm-hmm. wanted to capture where it's kind of like you are so afraid that you're actually holding back. And you're not just holding back yourself from yourself. You're also holding back yourself from your surroundings. Right. And like maybe you, maybe Sam expressing himself more samly would actually benefit the environment I'm in. Absolutely. We had a server last night. It's really sweet. She was working the whole dining room by herself and she had a mask on, so it was a little hard to see her expressions, but she was a little late coming to the table and she kept apologizing, apologizing. It reminded me of myself in my book because I have a whole section where I talk about, I apologize for everything. And I don't do that anymore, but I had to be become aware of it. And I even... I have a little thing in the book where I go, so if I, you know, he's unhappy because it must be my fault. And then I go, wait a minute, it's not my fault at all. And I had that sort of revelation that, no, it's not my responsibility to make somebody happy. I'm doing all I can. I'm human, but they're ultimately responsible for their happiness. But I told this girl, I said, can I share something? And I didn't know if I should or not, but... I said, you're lovely. You don't need to apologize so much. We know you're trying hard. And I said, just be yourself. (laughs) And she walked away and I was like, I don't know if I should have done that. But I thought maybe nobody else will ever say that to her. Maybe she'll think about it and just think, yeah, I'm trying my best. And people do see that. And I don't know, I did it to build her up. And I tried to say it in a nice way. But I thought, no, it's okay that I said that. Because maybe she'll think about it and maybe realize, you know, I don't have to apologize for everything, stumble over myself. Yeah, especially if it's just a thing of habit. Yeah, and right? it does become habit. I know for women especially, it's, it's, it's it become becomes a habit. Ha- it is a me. habit. Yeah, and it was yeah. constantly giving my power away. Oh, I'm sorry I did that. Mm-hmm. Sorry I did this. I found strange other connections like my relationship to hard. Mm-hmm. Like there was a time where I'd have to go like, Oh yeah, you know, this was really hard. This, that was really hard. But there are these little habits you get in that are just totally deflating. And you go, that wasn't hard. Right. Like it like what it wasn't hard, it was tedious. Right. And you didn't sit down and you didn't do it because it was tedious. Right. I gave myself the challenge to not say hard for a couple months. Yeah. 
and find a better descriptor. Yeah. For it because good. all of a sudden I found everything around me had become hard. Right. Like I had wired everything. It's just a default. It's like a, yeah. you know, no worries, whatever we say, you know, it just kind of comes out. But no, I think that's good. And I remember how you said in our book group, we don't apologize on here. I guess people are always apologizing. And then I came on one night and I said, I'm sorry, you go. Remember, no apologies. He just called me out and I was like, right. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, I'm not good with email. And for some reason, I guess in 2022, you're supposed to be really good with email. But there are days where it would really throw me off to go mm -hmm. into the email. Like if I'm creating, maybe I could do it at the end of the day. But I'm generally pretty beat at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. So I've just stopped apologizing for being late. It's like, hey, I don't know where you got the expectation of what my response time would be. But I do live with my phone in my pocket as much as I can. Mm -hmm. And you saw the post-it notes. I'm touching screens as little as I possibly can. Yeah. That's good. Awareness is the beginning of change. I mean, you just you become aware of things and you work on them and just show yourself some grace. I have a question about the photos. Who took all these incredible photos of you? The, this one? The cover. I've been to Aww. your website. There's a bunch of these older photos of you around, and they're all stunning. Thanks. Ray Matthews did my cover photo, and he just passed away. Oh, wow. I've been friends with him for 40 years. But when I moved down to the beach and I met Steve the Dream, the DJ, and then I fell in love. He was my first. He was this gorgeous Roman god, I describe him. Decided to stay there for the fall, drop out of college and just stay on for the fall and be with him. And then the day, almost to the day that I made that decision, he tells me that he's going to New York to become a model. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I just called my parents. Yeah, I'm staying here for the winter. And I felt really good about it. And then he tells me that Wilhelmina has signed him and he's going to New York to be a model. And he says, oh, you should try modeling. And I was very insecure at the time. And I was like, yeah, really? Does he think I could do that? He went off to New York. I had a miserable winter at the beach, went back to college, was still unhappy. And um, I started modeling locally uh. near college and enjoyed it. I was down at the beach for a weekend and he was, Steve happened to be there. And I told him I was modeling and he's, he's like, oh, well, Ray Matthews did my pictures. You should have him make some. So I contacted Ray, and he had been a friend of my brother's. That makes so. Yeah, yeah. I was looking at, the, <clears throat> at all the photos. There's some more on your website. There's some mm -hmm. more, I think, that you shared on events that you were doing. Yeah, on, just, on an Instagram, I do. And, yeah, uh, yeah. Was, every single one looked like it was like out of like Life magazine. <laughs> I was, like it was such a beautifully uh, complex photo. Ray is a very famous Outer Banks landscape photographer, but I, he's just such a nice guy. He was sort of a treasure of the Outer Banks and it really hit me hard when he died. I had to go down there. I drove down. But yeah, he did my cover photo and, and I heard I heard he had cancer. I heard it was pretty advanced. And Stephen, my husband, said, you need to send him your book right now. So I did. Like The next day I went, mailed it off, priority, and sent it to him. And I put a little card in it. On the inside, I signed it and I put all the pages where I mentioned him. And then I said, you finally made me a cover girl. Wow. And he read it right away. And he wrote me the sweetest email. And he said, I loved your book. He said, I loved reading about all the people and those, that summer that was so magical and all the people we knew and what things were like back then. It was a different time. That just meant the world to me that he got to read it before he died. And his wife read it too. And yeah, it was a magical summer. I don't want to spoil the book too much because it will be a future Hello Humans book club book that we're doing. But in the sense of adventure that you've had for life, what's the one that almost didn't happen that you're so grateful that it did? Because I'm trying to think about like, wow. I want to bring, you know, my whole life, like being a little bit of a child star, being a checked out teenager, and then, which was kind of adventurous. No, it was very adventurous, but then very quickly becoming a responsible father at 18. I would like to adventure again and make it okay to adventure again. But I, everything seems like a bad decision, right? Mm -hmm. Like an irresponsible, like, nope, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. little <laughs> adventure inspiration for me, maybe. Okay. I'll tell you an interesting story. So I went to New York at 19. I turned 20. When I was 20, I signed with Wilhelmina in New York, and which was Steve's agent. And then I self-sabotaged, came home, 
And a couple of years later, I married quickly and I was going through that relationship was was tough. I started losing a lot of weight and I got down to below where they wanted me to be in New York. But I was like, maybe I could model again. So I went back. I was 23. I sent my pictures to Wilhelmina. They're like, sure, come on up. And I, I went up. They took my pictures to the back. They kept them for like half an hour. And I was like, oh, this is great. This is good. Good sign. They came out and she said, um, gosh, we love your look. You photograph so well. She said, how old are you? I said, I'm 23. She goes, oh, I'm afraid you're too old. <laughs> <laughs> and I just say, my heart sinks. And they, I think Ford had just signed Brooke Shields two years earlier. She was 12 at the time. And she was 14 when I was there. She said, yeah. And we were in the middle of a huge recession in, our, in the country. She said, she said, yeah, she said, we're hiring like 14-year-olds now because we can get 20 years out of them. And she said, we can only get 10 out of you. And she said, I'm sorry. And it's like, okay. Fast forward 20 years. I had moved away, ended up back in the Triangle area. A friend of mine said, there's this agency in Greensboro, which is about an hour away, where I had gone to college originally. And, and they're hiring older models. You should go. And I was like, nah, I, I'm done. I don't, I don't want to do that. And I was teaching at the time. I just started teaching kindergarten. I had my, my kids were pretty young. I was like, nah. She's like, I would just go, just take some pictures. So I did. I walked in. They handed me a contract. I started modeling when I was 43. Wow. And then two years later, two or three years later, I went down to Wilhelmina, Miami, and they signed me. I ended up traveling around the world, and I modeled for 10 years. Wow. And I was, I modeled you know, from 43 to 53 or so, I got, ended up getting breast cancer. Mm. Stage one, we got it early and I got through that, but I was on medication, gained some weight. And then I just kind of was like, eh, I'm kind of done with this. I had fun. Would you model again? Oh, no. <laughs> no? <laughs> I'm truly done. Okay. Yeah, I have absolutely no interest. I mean, it is a done deal. <laughs> I mean, I don't care if they said we give you a million. I would just be like, no, because the maintenance is just too much. Oh, you okay. Know? That it wasn't just, fun. No, I mean, not at my age. I want to write. That's all I want to do now. I feel like my time's short. I have all these things I want to write. What other projects do you have in you? What, um, what I'm writing, a, I'm working on a memoir now about my faith journey and really just how during the pandemic, how it all sort of transpired. And I was in the Anglican church for about 15 years and I loved, I was drawn to the liturgy and the sacrament. I love the Eucharist and I love coming to the table every week and I love the liturgy. Tell us about Anglican. So that's the Church of England. Yeah, it is. I mean, there's a, we weren't Church of England. Actually, our branch came out of Africa, out of Rwanda. So it came out of, um, in Africa, the, there was the Eastern Revival. So people went and converted people in Africa. And that revival has really stuck. There was a revival here in North America, but it hasn't stuck, obviously, I mean, so much. But in Africa, it really had deep roots. And so the Anglican Church in Africa started feeling like the United States was the biggest mission field in the world. You know, we, we think of sending missionaries to Africa. Well, they were thinking, no, we need to send missionaries <laughs> over there. So I became part of this Anglican church. There was a church planting mission in America, but through the Anglican church. So they were actually our leaders, the Rwandan church was. I was just really drawn to this and I ended up going to Rwanda in 2010. It was a wonderful trip. I was there for a couple of weeks. I loved it. I loved the liturgy. I just, it was very grounding for me. I was going through a divorce at the time. And when I found that faith, it just drew me. It was solid, it just gave me something to cling to. And I'd done that for years and years. But I guess right around 2016, there was so much upheaval and the Me Too movement and everything. And I started sort of looking and questioning things about just men being in leadership and men being up front and how the table was closed to people that weren't baptized believers. That oh. started to bother me, you know, and I was like, well, what about women? Jesus. So it's a like communion in that way. Yeah. Okay. It, it was like, it was like, I just started questioning just things about the traditions and all that. And I mean, I still, I still loved my church, but I, I just felt very unsettled and I'd go back and I would, I'd be fine through the sermon and everything. And then when it got time for the table, I would just think, well, if somebody was gay, could they come up? Or if somebody wasn't baptized, could they come? And, you know, it's like, I don't think Jesus would turn anybody away. I just started feeling that in my spirit. 
So then the pandemic hit. Then I was stuck at home and I ended up gravitating to the Good Shepherd New York, the church from General Theological Seminary. And they had an online church and it was wonderful and very inclusive. And What tradition is that? It's it's an Episcopal. Okay. I think it is. But it was just an incredible, and all these great professional New York musicians. I mean, the music was just uh, amazing. So I did that for a couple of years and and through that, I mean, when George Floyd was killed that week, they would have a lament and they would have music and songs and they would talk about it and they'd have a moment of silence and they'd have this picture and everything that was going on that week. I knew I could go there on Sunday and they would be talking about what was happening, what was breaking my heart and breaking God's heart. And I was like, this is what I want. This is feeding me. This is real. This is like... So very integrated into the real very, world. Very. It was like yeah. faith in real life, you know, yeah. like rubber meets the road kind of faith. And I was like, that's what my spirit was really longing for. So, But I was like, well, I can't drive 500 miles to New York <laughs> once the pandemic's <laughs> over. I sat in our house and I thought, how many times are we going to go through a pandemic? God forbid we ever go through. And I mean, we're still in one, but this sort of surprise up people where we're stuck at home for a year. Yeah. And I, is it, st I don't know if it's still a pandemic at this yeah, point. Yeah. But you know what I mean? Yeah. We're still, there's still, the aftermath. we're still masking yeah. and there's after, and we're still getting boosters and all that. But I thought it was so profound to me. And I thought, am I just going to come out of this and it's going to be business as usual and just go back to doing what I did before? Or how am I going to live differently? I started studying Matthew 25, but where Jesus said, feed the hungry, clothe the naked. And I thought, well, that's a lot, visit the prisoner. I'd done some of that in the past, and um, I'd worked in prison, in women's prison in Raleigh. And but I thought, I can't do all that. God, where do you want me to go? And then all of a sudden, I met a woman who had a festival for the homeless in town and got to be friends with her. And then she had a festival for the homeless? Yeah, we just had What it. a cool human. It's okay, right now we got to She's back amazing. Up. Tell us about the festival for the homeless. Well, the, that year, it was canceled, obviously, but and then we had it last year, and it was great last year. It rained this year. We still had it, but we didn't have the attendance. So but, was there a parade? No. She has a soundstage. She has a DJ. She has all this entertainment. People come, sing. The music's fabulous. Dancing. I mean, people are dancing out. And it's in this public park in Winston-Salem, and the health department came, gave free vaccines. There's health screenings, mental health screenings. There are all these food trucks that come and fry fish and have barbecue and give away food. There's a clothing tent where people can come get clothing. People donate tote bags and fill them with things for kids and women and socks and hygiene products and all that. Wow. And then last year, the church that I attend, the dwelling, we had a mobile shower for people. And then a barbershop downtown, these guys came and sat up under a shelter and cut hair. And it's four hours on a Saturday afternoon. It's pretty great. So, wow. so I met her. I met the organizer. And she starts, like, the day she finishes, she starts organizing the next year. The next year. year. Mm -hmm. It's very supported by the community. So I met her. And then through her, I learned about this group called Housing Justice Now. And they had an eviction hotline. And the head of it called me. And he said, um, I sort of reached out to him. I was like, hey, you know, I'd like to get involved. And he's like, yeah, we have a hotline. I was like, oh, no, I don't want to do that. That I couldn't imagine because I'm introverted. I was like, I don't want to talk to people on the phone, strangers. And um, he's like, well, we need some research. And I love research. And so I said, I'll do the research. So I was researching some of the landlords in town who were doing a lot of housing code violations. So I got started there. And then I sort of weaned myself into the hotline. I do, I do that every week. I volunteer on Wednesdays. And Someone's so covering for me today. Someone gets evicted. You're there to answer the phone and help. That are people that they just got a, they got an eviction notice and they have a court date. And what do I do? And we talk to them about appeals. Now, we don't give any legal advice at all, but we're an advocacy group. So we will, if they need money for, you know, I'm short on my rent. I'm afraid my landlord's going to evict me. We point them to organizations and we send them to legal aid if they have legal issues or if the, if the landlord won't fix their you know mold in their apartment or whatever, we can say call city code enforcement and they'll come out and look at everything and 
find your landlord. So we just point them to resources. That's beautiful. So we do that. So I do that once a week. But um, but then I was starting to think, well, where am I going to go to church? And I looked at a lot of things. But anyway, one day I opened my computer, The Dwelling, a new church started by this amazing female pastor. And it was right downtown. And she just started in March. And it, in April, I got my second booster, and so I was, felt safe going out, and I went. And I probably the first Sunday I walked in there, there were 20 people there. And now we have 100 to 200 people every week. Wow. And they come off the streets. They come from the housing projects. They have a bus. They can pick people up. We have a service. Everybody's welcome at the table. And you should see it. It's the kingdom of God, Sam. It's like it's real. It's like everybody comes. and then we have a meal together. They cook a meal for everybody every week. Hot food, delicious. All the fixings. <laughs> and we have showers. Sometimes the food pantry will come and give bags of food or we'll have clothing. Those are my people now. It's changed my life. So I'm writing. That's, that does sound like that's my new book. God. That's my new book. I'm writing about my journey from Anglicanism to helping the homeless. And I it's a little daunting for me. I, I'm learning. I'm on such a learning curve. I mean, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing, and there's so much I don't know. But again, I'm just doing the next thing. I'm I'm reading a lot of books. I'm talking to people. It, it may take me longer to write this book and the fact that I have a lot of research to do, and I want it to be sound. But I'm also writing out of my current experience, which is very different from that book, which was, you know, my past. I just sat down and just sort of read my history. But this is this is like lived experience as I'm going. So I um, love the image of a church with showers, yes, yeah, with great. clothing swaps, kind of. Uh, it's beautiful, and we've just we've just inherited this huge old building, and we're renovating it, and we're moving in there in January. We're going to be able to have a shelter space and daycare and all kinds of things. And I'm just so excited about it. And then I have a novel. I want to write a historic fiction novel that I came up with the whole idea and it's all outlined in all the character sketches and everything from 1988. Were you even born then? <laughs> yeah, uh, not yet, but yeah, I was, see, I was 89. I, yeah. So that's one. So I have that. And then I have a children's book that I've already written, but I just need to have edited and published. So if I get those things done, that is so I'll cool. be, I'll be happy. I'm, I'll be, I'll be happy. Yeah. So I'm just trying to hang in there until it's all done. I have a few projects where it's like I have a screenplay I want to write. Mm -hmm. I have a fiction I want to write. And I have a nonfiction I want to write. I don't think any of them need to get produced right. for public. Right. But they sure as hell, I think, need to get written. Oh, good. Well, that's yeah. the way to do it. I, I tell people just write things. I, I just say write it. And you don't – because people are afraid to write memoir, you know, for all the reasons. And I say write it. Well, just, memoir scares me. Yeah. Memoir scares me. The word scares me. When somebody that. hands me a memoir, I'm scared to read it. Yeah. Because the, the range of uh, final product in the memoir section is drastic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? like, there are... I've read a lot of memoirs, so I, I understand. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's it's a funny it's almost like a dirty word because i get i don't buy memoir so mm -hmm. the only memoirs i get are from people that know me they're mm -hmm. like hey i wrote a memoir will you read it but yeah it's a funny genre for me yeah but i tell people just to write your story i said you don't have to show it to anybody i didn't start out writing my book to heal but that's what happened to me because there were things in my past that were so dark that i just didn't ever think i could tell them and I get to these places, like the first third of my book, it was easy to write because it was all sort of lie. I mean, not my brother's death, but but there was no baggage around that. And movement. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But then I got to some of my decisions that were on me. I mean, Lawrence's death was out of my hands. But when it came down to things that were on me, that I made this decision and I did this and I chose this person and I did this, that got hard. And I would tell Brooke, I'd say, I don't know if I can write this. And she'd say, well, you don't have to. But if you want to finish your book, you have to. So I would sit down and just I literally would put myself back in the room and just drop down into that space, close my eyes in front of my desk and just remember the wood paneling and the sound of the ocean and how I felt and my heart pounding and what did I look like? What was I wearing? You know, just to make it feel present. And it was hard and painful sometimes, and I just I would write through it, and it was just, ugh. 
And then I'd finish and I'd set it aside. I'd take a day or so off and I'd come back to it and then I'd send it to Brooke and she'd edit it. And then we'd finish and put it aside. And I would be like, wow, you survived. You made it. And then I'd get to the next hard thing and I'd feel the same way. Yeah. And I'd write through that. And, and then I kept writing and then I got to the end and I was still here. And then the next step was putting it out in the world. Terrif- yeah. Terrifying, you know. What are people going to think of me? And and the I'll tell you this story, but I, I remember it was right. My book was right about to go to the press. We live on a lake, and there was a little path. And I was walking my dog down the path one day, and I had my head sort of down, and I just heard God say, "If you walk around with your head down, what does that say about me?" Because I'm wow. Say I'm, that again. If you walk around with your head down, what does that say about me? I'm forgiven. I mean, I believe in my faith. I'm completely forgiven. That's all done. It's past. He took that from me. He's like, walk into the world with your head up. And I turned around and I went home and I told my husband about it. And I said, the weirdest thing just happened to me. And I knew it was true. I knew. Like, if I was on podcasts or doing, you know, and I'm like, you know, (laughs) telling my story, I was like, people are going to say, yeah, she's still carrying all that shame. And I'm not writing my story. I mean, look at that. And she's still eating up with it. And so I started practicing walking around with my head up, and I knew my book was going to the press. I knew it was going to come out. People were going to read it. But I just, when I'd have that moment of, oh, no, I would just, I'd lift my head. And a couple of weeks later, I walked in the kitchen, and I said to Stephen, I said, I can't explain this, but I feel like a different person. I said, I feel lighter. I feel free. And I feel like I was healed. I feel like I don't carry shame anymore. Do you think it was part of the writing process? It was, but I think I was, because I had released it Yeah, and I'd spoken it and it was out there, then it was almost like I I didn't embody it anymore. You know, Brene Brown says when we bring our shame to the light, it loses its power. And the Bible talks about that too. I mean, that things that are in darkness or hidden, but when they're brought to the light, then they're exposed, Yeah, obviously. It's just a clear metaphor, but that's what happened to me. And I've been able to, once my book came out, I was like, it's going to be okay. And that's been the reality of it. I mean, I've experienced it. (laughs) So it was an amazing thing that happened. And I'm really glad I wrote it. And um, it's getting a lot of feedback from people. I mean. Yeah, it's definitely, I read the reviews. (sighs) I'm seeing all the awards it's winning. It's definitely hitting people. And affecting that. It it shocks me. It feels sort of out of body for me. Like when somebody gives me feedback or a friend of mine from high school read me and she said, when I read the part about your mom, my mom had mental health struggles. And she said, my mom had the same thing. And she said, I've never allowed myself to grieve. She passed away. And she's like, I read your book. And she said, I sat down and I cried and I grieved for the first time. I allowed myself to cry. And she said, thank you so much. And I just, because I don't feel like it's me. I feel like it's something beyond me now you know my book like if it helps people or it's resonating i feel like i did my job i set it out there and how people respond you know it's just kind of out of my hands but it's really been a gift a beautiful gift for me it's a blessing i mean when people write me or just tell me you know you both expect to me and you never know what's going to hit people yeah i i had a an experience that affected me pretty deeply in my early 20s so I was already sober at this point. I was already kind of starting to pay attention to life in a way that I hadn't for 10 years. And I lived in the Tenderloin in San Francisco, which is kind of like the shitty area. Mm-hmm. We had a great little crew that would always be at this cafe. One of the kind of regulars who was like all of our friends was Terminal, and he did not handle it well. Mm-hmm. You know, he had not carried himself in a way. He had not done the work in a way that it was really ugly process you know it's like Mm -hmm. uh to watch him have to accept that he was going to die and so i feel like some of this work is really necessary beautiful soul work Mm -hmm. to capture your story and you know not to wait not not to wait until you're forced to confront it but to confront it early on and to talk about the mistakes made and the the things that went wrong and uh, while there's still time especially I think that's what I get out of journaling a lot is it's like, yeah. whether it's a good, do- good day or bad day, I have to acknowledge, I have to look at it yeah. and acknowledge it. Yeah, that's right. And one thing that happened out of this, and I think by writing and journaling and looking and reflecting on things is that I have so much compassion for that young girl now. Yeah. 
You know, whereas before I would look at her and I'd just think, oh, I just messed up. And now I can look at her and just go, yeah, she she tried hard. She was wounded and she was grieving and nobody talked to her about that. And she didn't have, a, I mean, no wonder she did what she did. You know, I can look at her sort of as a, as another person, but I feel compassion for her. That's nice. Yeah. You want to have compassion for your younger self, you know, and I think as you get older, I mean, as you get older and you, you know, you're in the process of doing that. I've heard you talk about your younger self. Yeah. But you'll have more compassion for that person as you get older, as you go through more things. And you'll, I believe that because you're very reflective and thoughtful and you want to learn from what you've done and you want to do better. So if you're, if you go into life with that mindset, I think that's just going to inevitably happen. Yeah. This book was such a success on, like, as a independent book launch, it was just such a success on so many levels that I kind of want to highlight. The fact that you sat down and you did the writing, you you built a team around you, mm-hmm. right? Which is, I I think, necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also the the launch and press went really well, and I wanted to talk about that because I imagine you had to do a lot of the advocating. I had a great publicist, okay. so I did hire somebody. I hired a great publicist, and they did a national campaign for me. But but I was very hands on, so I had to. They, they sent me homework, and so I had to come up with who are the local people I want pitched to, which podcast do I want to be on, and which news outlets, and what are my dream people. And so I sent them all that information. And then they sort of called through it, and they did a book, bookstagram tour and pitched everybody I wanted to pitch and more. So it was it was great. I got a lot of great opportunities. But then I went into bookstores. I took my my arcs, my early copies into bookstores, hand delivered them, introduced myself, said I'd love to come and do an event. Pretty much to a T, they all responded. I was just really doing the personal stuff. And I love doing that because I had done it with Jan. She had taught me how to do that. And then I had done book signings with her and I'd gone to her to all the indie bookstores and I'd fronted her books and I'd watched her speak. And one time I was in an event at a college and she shook hands with 600 people. And I watched her, and she I was standing beside her, and she looked every single person in the eye, spoke to them as though no one else were there. No matter if her best friend was like the next person down, instead of going like this and distracting, she was focused. And then the next person came, she was focused on them, and I was like, I'm going to do that one day. You know, I just watched her, and I learned from her, and I learned from the best. And I watched her work eight hours a day on writing her novels, and then when she got published by a UK publisher and they weren't really marketing her books well over here. She bought copies and I watched her call booksellers and and she ended up signing with Penguin and then she had the New York Times list. But I watched her do all that and I watched her work hard and I thought, this is what it takes. You know, it's and this was year this is like in the eighties and the whole publishing industry has changed now. I mean it's it's harder now. It's much it, yeah, and yeah, in, in a lot of ways it's much harder because she had a she had a publicist at Penguin that, you know, did a lot for her. I was in there fighting for her and just I'm very disappointed with how publishing is going. Yeah, it's, it's very disheartening and I it's quick, I know that racing to be just book printers. Yeah, right? so <laughs> that was one reason I chose this press because I was querying agents for six months and I still want to get an agent. I'm still, I I plan to do that. I'm working on my book proposal for the new book and writing my new book now, but I'll very soon be looking for agents if anyone's listening. And um, (laughs) I was doing that and I did it about six months and, and I got some positive feedback, but memoir is very, very, very hard to sell. It's hard for agents to sell it unless you're a celebrity, unless you've got a big sort of story, you know, something is going to sell millions of copies. And I wasn't, certainly wasn't that. I did it for a while and, and I was talking to my husband about it and Brooke had said, hey, I'd love to publish your book. You know, she has, she writes press and, uh, and I was interested, but I said, yeah, I want to go traditional. I'm going to try to go traditional first. And she said, that's fine. Most of the people I work with want to do that. So I did it for about six months and I wasn't getting any younger. And I started thinking about, well, once I do get a pub, once I get an agent, they have to sell my book. Then I sign a contract. Then it takes two more years. And I was adding up my age and I was like, I don't want to wait any longer. And then I, Stephen and I talked and he said, I think, I think she writes would be the best book for your book. I think you've got a built-in community of women. You buy each other's books. You sell them. You review them. She's like, the, he said the support. He said, I think it would be great for your book. And he was right. 
it's been a dream and I have no regrets. And so I, I contacted her and I said, I want to do this. And so we started and when I signed my contract in um, October 2020, she said, yeah, your book is set to come out April of 2022. And I was like, oh, that's so long. <laughs> but then when you're doing all the hiring a publicist and you're approving interior design and cover and all that, and it goes really fast. Yeah. I'm so glad my book's out here now and not just sitting waiting for someone to vet it. Choose yourself. That's what she says. She's like, green light your own work. Because for me, I, my book came out when I was 65, and I have other things I need to do, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so now my book's out there and people are reading it. So now I can go on to the next thing, and she's been launched, and I'll just keep going. You know, I've got other things I want to do. So wow, it was a great decision. I love your story, and I really appreciate your friendship as oh, well. I feel yeah. the same way. I'm so happy to be sitting here talking yeah. with you. Yeah, I, I like to end the same way every time. But if I could slide a phone over to you mm -hmm. and on the other end was a young Laura from a previous chapter, mm -hmm. what are some words you'd want her to know that you think would just be comforting to hear about the woman that she becomes mm -hmm. and that the journey she's on? Maybe it's helpful, maybe it's reassuring, yeah. whatever feels true. I think I would tell her to guard her heart a little bit more. No one really spoke that to me when I was younger, and I wish they had. Don't give your heart away to everybody. But then I would say, show yourself some grace. Don't be too hard on yourself. You'll never be perfect, <laughs> and that's okay. And you're going to do just fine. Thank you, Laura. And you're going to actually live your dream. And I have. So. And for anyone who wants to follow your journey, who mm -hmm. wants to support you, buy your book, Get updated on how the newer books are going. What are the yeah. best ways to stay in touch with you? My website is laurawhitfield.com, and I have all the ways to buy my book. My book's wherever books are sold. But please try to support your local indie. Uh, that's always my favorite way, if you can. I have my events there, media, different media things I've done is all there. And then I'm on, I live on Instagram. Okay. I love Instagram. <laughs> I'm on Facebook, too, and Twitter, but I love Instagram. That's where I live. So, so we follow you on Instagram if you want to know when the new books are coming out. Yeah, and okay. then my website will have it. And I do send out a, a newsletter and people can sign up on my website. So And your Instagram is? Is Laura Whitfield Writer. Awesome. Thank yeah. you so much for your yeah. time. Yeah, thanks, Sam. Thanks for listening to the How To Human podcast. For more of Laura, go to laurawhitfield.com. And for more of us, go to hellohumans.co. I could really use your support. If you've made it this far, you like what we're doing, we are struggling and we want to grow and keep growing and be able to do bigger and better and cooler things, but we need your help. We need patrons. We need some of the thousands of listeners to say, you know what, I'll give you five bucks a month or 10 bucks a month or whatever feels right, whatever you can handle, whatever feels good to you. If we have earned your support, go to patreon.com slash howtohuman. We have a book club. You get to see the podcast and video. I will be giving talks that you get to see in video format, and you also get to feel fantastic supporting products that you love. You could also write us a review on iTunes. I read every one. It's been a while since we've gotten one, and I would love to read your thoughts on this show. Or you could just share us with a friend, and hopefully some of the amazing humans in your life that you share the show with might end up becoming patrons themselves. There's many ways to support us, but until next time, have a great day.